Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number 17. Last week, we interviewed a Wall Street analyst and we asked how a consumer student-centric approach to higher education could change the value equation. This week, we decided to go deeper into higher education with someone who has experiences in both worlds, Wall Street and higher education. Our guest, Adlai Workman, is the David C. Bonnet Professor of Social Entrepreneurship at the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business. He's also the founding director of the Brittingham Social Enterprise Lab at Marshall, a university-wide center focused on educating and supporting USC students, faculty, staff, and community members on using business models to address global, social, environmental, and health challenges. Now, prior to joining the faculty at the Marshall School, Adelaide spent seven years as president and CEO of Chrysalis, the only nonprofit in Los Angeles devoted solely to helping the homeless change their lives through employment. After 18 years as an investment banker in New York and Los Angeles, together we will talk about the digital transformation that's happening in higher education and how the social unrest is impacting professors, faculty, and students. We will also discuss the challenges defining education as an investment that can have a tangible ROI measurement. Adelie will also be one of the 15 higher education guest speakers on day three of GLLG's 2020 Leadership in the Age of Personalization virtual summit that will take place on October 30th. Check it out. And thanks to our sponsorship, you can register free at 2020summit.ageofpersonalization.com. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Adley, thank you, brother. Thanks for being here. I would spend time with you, Glenn, under any circumstance. And I'm sorry we're not in the same room right now. That's a, that's a bummer. It is a bummer. I wish I could hug you. And I, I know a lot of other people will feel that way, too, after listening to you. So um, I'm going to just start it off with a pop quiz, given the current climate, uh, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. And here's the statement I'd like for you to react to, Adley. Knowing something's right isn't enough to start doing what's right, and knowing something's wrong isn't enough to stop doing it. Um, first of all, I'm the professor. I give the test, so not me. <laughs> <you. laughs> uh, I think, um, you know, I, I think people, you know, Kahneman, I think, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist realized uh, in a groundbreaking uh, and the reason he won a Nobel Prize uh, that people um, 
would rather make no decision than make the wrong decision. So he turned upside down this whole idea of economic man, the thing that we that all economics was built on, which is that we do everything only to the extent that um, it helps us. So, so we always could assume in all economics that greed was the motivating factor. And he actually said, no, we have it backwards. The motivating factor is actually a bigger motivating factor is not making a decision because of fear of doing something wrong. Um, so I think that people get into their lane and they just stay in their lane. And I was mentioning, I was in traffic yesterday, coming back from Colorado. And the question was, you could see who kept switching lanes. And those people who said, thinking there was always a better one. And those people just said, I'm in my lane, I'm going to stay in my lane. And I think everybody got a little angry at those people who, you know, left their lane. Hmm. Right? It was sort of like, just, you're making me challenge myself at that goal. So I think that we all know what's what's right, or what we think is right. We all know what we're thinking is wrong, but still our innate humanity says, just do nothing. Keep doing what we're doing, right? Because especially doing something right is hard. You know, I don't think stopping doing something wrong should be hard, okay? It tends to be hard in our economy because often doing something wrong can be highly profitable, mm. right? So it's sort of hard in our, our world to stop doing wrong. But then the idea of doing right, I think that usually requires much more self-sacrifice. So, um, so yeah, that, no, no, I, I love where you're going. And, and again, you, you're always making me think. So, um, so I'm not a big fan of the word transformation. Um, why? Because if people were evolving in the right way, um, and if they made the right decisions when, they, uh, when the time called for them, then we wouldn't have to transform. So wh why has this been such a big surge of transformation uh, across um, large institutions? Is it because uh, we didn't know when it was the time to do the right thing? Uh I mean, aren't we making it more complicated now by trying, trans trying to do transformation with people that maybe aren't ready to do what's right? I think, though, that these days we have no choice, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we were, we're, while I'm not a believer that we're really hearing it from consumers, we are. Uh, we are definitely at the higher levels of, uh, employment, uh, hearing it from our employees. Okay. I mean, you can look at what's been going on in Silicon Valley, what's been going on with Facebook and with um, Twitter. The pushback to a great extent started with employees right, saying this is unacceptable to us. And the one place that we know that sort of, so the only one of the research uh, pieces that came out years ago that has really proven out again and again is that it is easier to recruit people and then easier to retain the people you recruit. Do very expensive things, right? Um, if there's a feeling and a belief, now I'm just saying feeling and belief that there's values alignment, 
between mm. you and your potential or your current employer, right? So therefore, that was less and less true. Plus, my my as an employee willingness to express my values at work were never sort of I could separate those two. Mm. In the last several years, that's over. Right? There's a generation coming up that is not separating them. Right? There is there are advertisers now who are pushed by that generation to not put up with it anymore. Right? The idea that advertisers are boycotting Facebook because of, of who they're allowing to post is remarkable. So I think transformation is happening faster than any of us can imagine. You know, interestingly, I heard speakers the other day on education and higher ed after this. And uh, the comment was, we're going to see more change in education, higher education, in the next three years than we have in the last 30. Hmm. Because oh. of what's happening here yeah. between the well, us. So, so what, what I hear from you is that what's been the driving force of transformation um, is that we have neglected the value of the individual. That, that as much as we may not want to accept it, uh, consumers and employees are no longer just following old standardized ways of doing things. Uh, they don't want to be defined by a large institution, let alone a brand. Uh, and now institutions are recognizing this. And, and this is what's driving the transformation. So here's a question for you. Adelaide, what is the new value equation in higher ed? I mean, it's historically been driven by the institution. And now uh, we see that uh, Google uh, is now uh, working with uh, presidents from large institutions, and they're focused on delivering two messages. What is the student mindset and what is the parent mindset? What's the value equation now that it begins with the student and the parent? It's very interesting way to look at it. I, I, so so the, this, the assumption is, is that the parent is paying the tuition. Yep. And that the student is following their parent's uh, direction. I, I think that as, you know, Tuitions at, at private universities have, the in, have gone up at a faster inflation rate than any other product in America. Nothing has risen. And now, you know, that 4% annual raise in tuition, when tuition is now $57,000 a year, that 4% is a new $2,500 a year. And the next thing you know, from 57 at 60, and from 60 at 63, we're not talking about incremental little changes. We're talking about unaffordable to an enormous number of people. So we had choices to make, right? Uh, and especially choices if we really want to use education as a way to rise up and to, to convert family trajectories for first generation or people coming out of um, communities that are not traditionally getting college educations in the past. Well, now, though, we're asking a first gen to spend a quarter of a million dollars on tuition. Or even if they, don't, even if they get a three-quarter scholarship, 
they're still in the whole 75 grand. Um, so we had our choices. And the choices I believe that we've made in education is to say that the measurement of success for us and the purpose of the way to look at tuition is ROI. It didn't used to be like that. We had a lot of choices as to how to look at it. There was all this stuff about how college people made better leaders and, and you know, all of the traditional white male attitude of um, liberal arts education. But in truth, now the universities have said, no, 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 I, I, heard a, I actually heard a senior um, financial aid officer the other day <laughs> say, we tell parents not to think about it as spending money on tuition, but as an investment. So if we're going to say to students, hey, we're asking you to, or parents, we're asking you to invest money, to consider this an investment, then their response is always going to be, great, measure it for me. Hmm. And the answer is, I measure investments by ROI. So therefore, we're going to tell you the numbers. Right? Here's the numbers for how much you will make after graduation versus what you spent. Hmm. Right? So now, you know, I'm a big believer. Um, that we always focus all of our attention, and Glenn, you and I have talked about this, on what we measure. Yeah. Right? Whatever I measure is what I'm going to do. Right? And we've seen how looking, Glenn, you and I have had this conversation, how looking at different measurements changes the way we act in the first place. Right. right? I mean, you know, um, so once we've said as a university, we're going to measure ourselves by how much money you make afterwards. Then suddenly I'm going to build a university around that. Hmm. I'm going to build vocational school. I mean, to a great extent, USC, which said for years that our, um, our biggest school was our arts and sciences school. Truth is, is if you take out the pre-meds and the basic science kids and look at the humanities majors, uh, the people studying the traditional, what you went to college for, um, then you're looking at 10 to 7 to 10% of our graduating class. Where are they graduating from? Business school, engineering school, mm-hmm. uh, communications, pure vocational school. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense to do that and to invest everything in your vocational schools. If I'm going to measure of how much vo- your vocation is paying, for how quickly you earn back your money that you that you invested on tuition, um, and then that you know I don't want to jump ahead, but the next step is well in that case do I really need a four year education? Mm-hmm. If all I'm doing is going to vocational school, why am I taking all these extra courses? Right? Why am I you know you've given me my business major in seventy credits, and then the rest of this is I get to do a second major or a minor, or a, um, and I have to take my general electives, my GEs, right? But the truth is, is if all I'm doing is going to grad school for, or going to undergrad for the business education, then I'll pay you for 70 credits and I'm out, not 140. Hmm. And now we start to go, well, now are we going to design mini programs for very specific personalization? What is it that you want out of school? You know, two ways to increase ROI, right? How much money you make afterwards and how much you invested, right? So now the question is, who, who, let's lower the cost of investment. 
And if we can't do that by lowering tuition, let's just change the model. So where do you think the model's headed based upon what you've said, or have you just described the new model or approach that people need to think about? I think, you know, there's two model changes. Model change number one is the easy one, delivery mechanism. And, you know, from the fact that you and I and Scott are having this conversation right now uh, over Zoom, I am about to, in a few hours, teach 75 students on Zoom. And the truth is, I've done two things. One is I've used what we now call a flipped classroom model. So everything, lecture, readings, all of that happens before they step into class. The minute they walk into class, everything is application of what they've heard. They do not need to sit in a room and hear me lecture. I can record that. They can watch it anytime they want. When they're in the classroom, we're going to do breakout rooms and debate and applied education. So that's the one change, but that doesn't change the number of credits it just, or units, or, it's just the delivery mechanism. And I happen to like and dislike, but I, I find that the, Scott, I, you have to tell me that, that, that teaching online actually allows me to do things that I never could have done before and never would have done before uh, in so many ways that I'm just discovering. I think uh, I'm the same way. I'm with you 100%. And I really love actually being in the spot where I am right now because even colleagues, to be honest, that I thought we're going to have some significant um, challenges with our, our just mass migration online uh, last spring, um, really not only rose up to the occasion, but found themselves reinvigorated in, in many ways. And I'm not trying to paint it as the perfect solution. We fixed it and now higher ed's okay because we're online too. But I do see a lot of innovation from all areas of, of the faculty that I get to work with. And, it, and it's exciting. And I'm trying to do it myself. And I was just thinking from your perspective, Adelaide, could I compare the starting day syllabus and plan you had in January 2020 to the one you have right now on the last day of August? Um, I know the way you think you've always had more of a student centric approach um, in, 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 your, in your approach towards just understanding what education is about. So I'm curious as to how your class last year, um, or I should say last January, was already ahead of the curve in terms of more of a, a student-centric approach, and how did that even change besides just, say, a flip, uh, flip modality? Um, thank you. Uh, two things. First of all, I want to go back to what you mentioned about your colleagues. Yeah. I have polled my classes and asked them, polling, by the way, is one of these great things you can do on Zoom, um, and asked them, how many of your professors are delivering the education, like you could tell, did the work over the summer to re-deliver their classes in a different way than when they were in the classroom. And the answer was typically from each group about a third. Two thirds okay. of the professors said, if I stood up in front of the room and talked to you before, I'm gonna stand up in the front of the room and talk to you now. And, um, and that was disappointing because, but they're thinking, look, I'm gonna be back in the classroom and three months or six months, what am I changing? <laughs> and those people, those professors are gonna be left behind. From my side, um, I started taking classes over the summer offered by USC on how to teach online. Okay. And I, after taking, I mean, I took, I mean, we're talking 40, 50 hours of classes. Wow. That wow. I took on how to teach online. I took multiple classes, especially when we added DEI to that and how to, 
you know, DEI was going to be hard to implement in a classroom, much harder when I can't read body language, I can't get feedback from the students. With 75 students, I have students on three pages of faces. Right. I, I never see the second or the third page. Um, and the third page is all blank names anyway. Um, I then sat down at my syllabus and tore it up. I just ripped it up. I was like, yeah. this is not, I can't teach, this is not what I can teach now. Um, and I, you know, I spent, I, I think I mentioned in the past, I spent easily 100 hours this summer redoing two syllabi. Yeah. I mean, I just, from scratch, just ripped it out and threw it including my learning objectives, everything. I just started did, all over again. How did the learning objectives themselves change? Because, right, like, I mean, that's the one thing I think everyone, whether they're in education or not, can understand that, you know, that's you're basically putting forth the mission. Like, you come here, you spend some time with me and your classmates, and this is what we're going to do together. Um, how, did, how did your objectives uh, change? Did, did they change much at all? You said they did. I think they changed in a few ways. One is I tighten them up. Okay, how so? I, well, because I finally, you know, I've been teaching, you know, I, I've taught this same course that I'm teaching now for 16 years. Okay. Two or three times a year for 16 years. And you sort of get your, your syllabus, you change the readings, but you really don't reevaluate your entire course. Yeah. And what this allowed me to do is really reevaluate what I should be teaching students in 2020 not just how do I teach it, but in thinking about how do I teach it, it had me go all, roll all the way backwards. And even to say, was I really teaching to that learning objective? Like I had it on there, but was I really, were students really leaving my classroom at the end of the semester knowing how to do X? They really weren't. So either I had a choice, redo my course, so that they did learn how to do X or admit that that was not actually a learning objective for the course. It was just on the list. Hmm. Um, and it was sort of a, it was a, I can't think of the right word right now. My brain's a little busted, um, but it was oh, an iterative process. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. It kept going back and forth. I would teach something. I would write a, a lesson plan for week six and go, you know, I should rewrite that learning objective because it's not exactly written word for word exactly to what I'm doing. Um, but then, you know, right now, preparing for class tonight has never, I've never prepared for a class this way. But, but Adelaide, let me jump into the pre preparation. Is sure. it preparing based upon the mechanism for delivery or are you rethinking what the learning objectives for your classes should be given the current state in society or both? Mm. Um, unfortunately, the latter has way more impact than I would have liked. Mm. I mean, I will be perfectly honest. I am afraid to walk into the classroom these days. I am afraid of my own students. And I have designed a course that protects me from them. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast, but, but you know, we're at a point right now where uh, cancel culture is extraordinarily rampant on college campuses, um, where 
in the past, I might have said something that was inappropriate and I could acknowledge it and apologize for it. Now I can assume I'm fired by the end of the day. Mm. We have a, I have a story that I heard the other day about a professor who said a word in another language in context, perfectly in context of the class, using an example of multiple languages having different words for the same thing, and used a word in another language that sounded like a racial slur and was fired from that professor's class for that. Teach wow. the students by the end of the class had written a petition and gotten together and the complaints happened and that teacher no longer can teach that class. Why? Because he said a word in another language that sounded like a word that was offensive in this language. So I always joke that this year I'm walking into class where one word can get me fired. You know, my, my joke after I heard that was I didn't realize that word didn't even have to be in English. Uh, mm -hmm. So we are all walking into class. I don't know, Scott, if you feel this way, but we're walking into classrooms literally with a gun to our head. Wow. Wow. And I, didn't, I, I, I didn't realize that, uh, that, number one, that you felt that way, and number two, that it's, well, I guess it's just so, it's, a, it's hypersensitive now on, uh, what really matters to the students. So this makes me feel that student centricity has le has uh, has accelerated even more. It's not just about their journey, but how we can even speak to them. Right. And you know, having a 26 year old, a 25 year old, and a 22 year old that I live with, you know, my kids. Uh, I don't actually live with kids, but. Um, um, who are uber progressive, super progressive kids. I can't keep up with the language of the day. Okay. I mean, I'm 61 years old. Words are changing. Allowable words are changing by the day. I run my course. I, I will tell you, I run my course daily. Today, when I'm preparing for my course, I run it by my daughter. Wow. And I say, is there anything offensive in here? Is there anything that would offend. Now, I teach a social justice course. Yeah. So for me, and I run a, you know, I run a program that is 40% people of students of color at a business school. And I am a business school professor. I am not a sociology professor where I was trained in this. I'm a business school professor, as you mentioned, trying to teach business skills to social justice students. Well, social justice students are particularly sensitive. They particularly, but even today, that's not true. I mean, it doesn't make a difference what program you're in. Um, if you're a teacher right now, the classroom is a risky place. It'll change. It's good. I mean, in the end, this yes. will be a good change. Yeah. But this moment in time, um, I cannot, you know, going back to personalization, I cannot personalize a 75-person class. Right. Right. I, I always think about it. I my class is um, three hours a week. This is my grad class. My undergrad class is four hours a week. So four hours a week times 15 weeks is 60 hours. Times 60 students is 3,600 hours of ear time. 
just your time, right? Meaning this is how many, and now the question is, can I possibly teach the 3,600 personalization required folks these days, because your books are brilliant in talking about that. Can I really do that in a way that doesn't offend one person in 3,600 hours of ear time in one sentence? I say a lot of sentences over 60 hours <laughs> to 60 people. Yeah. One yeah. sentence, right, that offends one or two or three or five of these folks for whatever reason. You know, I, I always talk about I teach as an example. I teach about charter schools. Interesting. Right? Charter schools are a model that addressed, um, you know, racism within the public school system. And there's always been a, um, a saying that's gone around the charter school world, forever, which is that your ability to get a good education in America depends on what zip code you were born in. Yeah. Hmm. Or the other line is, what exit off the highway are you? Hmm. But now I have students in my class who graduated from those schools. So have I just insulted them? Have I just told their classmates that these students didn't learn? Hmm. So now I don't talk about it anymore. I talk about it, but in a so different way, which is probably good. I was probably yeah. offending people before. But, but to have to think about yeah. the one sentence that I said that used to be a throwaway sentence. Glenn and I have been talking a lot over the, the past few months, um, literally just about the, um, the fundamental importance of language and not just as a superficial words matter, but like just literally that that is the tool that we have to navigate this very complicated new um, environment or context that we're in. And I think that it's good that we're struggling. It shows me that that we're not just admitting that there's been some serious bumps and shortfallings and inequalities in the past, but that in fact, we are, we're, instead of just talking about those inequalities as something that's on the shelf, we're seeing it like imbued in every word that we say, mm -hmm. things that just come right out of our mouth to, so that we know that actually it is, there's stuff in there that I need to think through and to, to share out, to understand. And so mm -hmm. I'm really excited about this terrible, terribly difficult challenge of, um, of really refocusing on the importance of language. And, and I think that what we're going to discover, one of the things that we're going to discover through this challenge um, is a more inclusive approach towards meeting those very students that you were just talking about that might have not necessarily always been coming to a program right. like yours, right? That really, that's the whole mission. If we have a better language, we're going to bring people like that to us and keep them with us in a way that, that, that the previous language just is going to put a, a, a line in front of. I guess that wasn't a question. It's just I'm 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 ready for this challenge, but I agree with you. It's it's frightening, and it's literally revolutionary. It is. So I uh, I used to be very proud of my not proud of myself. I, I remember when I made the change that when yeah. I would talk about a CEO, I used to say the CEO he did this, yeah. and then now I then I say changed it to she or he did this, or just say she. And now I say she, he, or they did this. Hmm. Right? So, I mean, I keep adding language to try to be more respectful to personalization. So, so Adelaide, much like you spent 50 hours taking a course on how to uh, teach online, have, has it become a requirement to take a course on how to teach 
in the face of all of this social unrest? Yes. But, but all of the research shows that those, the classes don't really work. Racial sensitivity. Um, so, so we're trying to figure out how to bring diversity into a classroom. I've just started in my master's degree an entire um, syllabus audit. So I've now asked nine professors to give me their syllabi that I'm going to give to our DEI folks to review. Interesting. Um, and I know what the answer is going to be. The What's answer the answer? Is be, oh, the answer is going to be you don't have diverse readings. Okay. They're not being written by diver, about diverse people or by diverse people. Okay. Uh, diverse people doesn't sound right. They're not being written uh, by people who reflect our students. They're not, the cases that we're doing are not about students of color or people of color because we're writing cases about the CEO of, of AT&T. And the CEO of AT&T has traditionally been a white male forever. Yeah. Right now, then we've gotten radical and now we can write it about some women, even though women represent what? 5% of, of CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, yeah. right? So even so, we're now we're looking to see, are we, do we have people of color that are writing the papers hmm. that are, um, that the cases are about, that are, that are our speakers that we bring into class, and that are the professors who are teaching them in the first place, hmm. right? So, so our students want to see themselves reflected in their learning. Right, because up until now, it's only been white people that are reflected in the earth loop, and now we're bringing in first generation. We're bringing in people of color, and they're saying, "Great!" So that now our job is to study about white people from white people. Right? Yeah. Can't we have somebody somewhere now? The challenge is the pipeline. Right? Yeah. We're having the same problem with recruiting diverse faculty. Right? To have diverse faculty, we need more diverse PhDs. Right, which take six years to grow, right? A PhD. By the way, Dad, Adelaide, really quick, you, you, you sound like the healthcare industry that says, if we're going to get more black or Hispanic doctors, it's going to take 30 years, but keep going. Well, I don't think 30 years, but I do think that, you know, one of the problems has been, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. Right. The reason that we don't have more diverse PhD candidates is because we don't have enough diverse professors to mentor yeah. the diverse PhD students. And, you know, and the truth is there's an enormous amount of attention going on at this university, uh, at our university to, you know, and, but the, the, the answer from your, whether it's true or not from the healthcare industry for us is, you know, and, and it was brilliant. Michael Quick, when he was provost, said something at his inauguration speech. He said, when we're talking about more diverse faculty, we're not talking about recruiting diverse faculty from another university. He said, that isn't creating diversity. That's exactly. just changing diversity's address. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That well, means training that we dollars. Have, it's like it's, there's no growth. Right. Which means that we have to train people and educate folks into these positions. And as a university, that's our job. So, but it's, go ahead, Natalie, go ahead. Well, I will tell you that it's gonna be harder and harder to train diverse faculty to become professors when our universities keep focusing on ROI. 
because I can tell you that professorship is not an ROI career. <laughs> right. And that was one of my concerns as I see, I mean, I see it. It's, it's, it's not like it's a new thing. ROI is here and it's, it's, it, that's the way it's talked about. That is how an, a, the admission cycle works, right? Yeah. This is come to us, go through this box. And at the end, this is what you get. Um, my biggest concern is that we're saying that by being, by going with ROI, we're now student centric. But I think if we look at this on a meta level, what we realize is what Glenn would talk about is it's substitution thinking and not transformation thinking. As much as you don't like the transformation, Glenn, we're going to need some. It's evolutionary thinking. We need to evolve, but keep going. Well, the good news is evolution happens whether or not we try to do it, because that just is, right? You can't stop evolution or where it's going, and it's not for good or for bad. It definitely is. But from our species perspective, we can find ways to make perhaps our species and the species that count on us and the planet that counts on us in some ways much more um, harmonious as opposed to, um, you know, fighting each other all the time or being extractive or exploitive. Um, but when I go back to the ROI thing, what I'm thinking is that, you know, what we're telling a student who isn't even in school yet is pick a major, pick a career. What are you going to do for the next 40 years? Now go when get it. When you're 17. Right. And most majors that I talk to, my favorite major is undecided because those are the most realistic students I've ever met. And those are the ones that I think are going to be happy doing what they're doing four years out or, you know, not four years, but after their four years in the program. Um, and so for me, I get really nervous about ROI because we're basically, we're basically trying to do this, uh, the student centric approach by saying, look, we're looking about your experience and what happens afterwards. Well, we're not even thinking about what's happening in the box. We're just pretending that by coming through and doing four years of X professional school, or maybe we can shorten it to two and then you can get out quicker with a different type of degree. All, we're, we're talking about what's after the box, not what's in the box. You know, um, as I listen to both of you, and I have a question for both of you. Wait, I'm going to stop you, Glenn. Go ahead. Two seconds. Two seconds. You used the word evolution before. Yes. The word right now is revolution. Hmm. Evolution, for the younger generation, for, for people of color right now in this country, it ain't evolution. They're done with evolution. This is revolution. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that through this question I'm going to ask. And sure, sorry. And thank you for stopping me. I, I love that about you, Adelaide, because you always get me rethinking whether I'm asking you the right question. But <laughs> why didn't we pay attention? Why didn't higher ed? let alone corporate America or healthcare, place a strategic bet on the cultural demographic shift 10 years ago. Why didn't we? Because I'm asking because I've been talking about the cultural demographic shift for a decade. And it's when, a lar when, when large cultural segments of the population reach numbers sufficient enough to have a significant effect on what we do and how we act. You know what I was told 10 years ago? Everyone's going to assimilate. It's not <laughs> going to make any difference. And that's the, the, the dangers of standardization. So now that this reality has finally hit us because of the social unrest that happened during a pandemic, which placed the spotlight on the topic, why were we not prepared for this? Because for me, it just seems so elementary that we would recognize that the people that would be giving, 
that would be paying us money would be people that would that would reflect a new demographic. Why didn't we pay attention to this? Because you know what I'm concerned about, Adelaide and Scott, and I'll make one last comment. I'm concerned that the methods and measures and mechanics that are being used to make sure that we're all careful will further silo populations and further silo the student away from the center. Go ahead. It's because we didn't found a diverse country 250 years ago. We founded a white Christian country. And every law and every policy has been written and every institution has been filled with white Christian males, really. It was enough. I mean, think of the radicalness of when I started on Wall Street in 1980, there were no women, none other than secretaries. The first female managing director at a Wall Street firm was 1986. I'm not talking about 1940, right? Like I tell people these things and they're like, oh, well, what are you, 110? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm 60. And when I started my career, there were no women, right? Wow. Um, and it was a fight. And now here we are in our, in our and, and why do we have this, this government that we have, right? Why is some fascist possibly winning a second election, right? A fascist. Why? Because he's saying, telling everybody, hey, everybody, if you haven't noticed, your white male Christian country is blowing up. And we're not ready to give up our country yet. Look, I'm a Jew. I know I've been a guest in this country my whole life. Right? I, I mean, I pass. I'm white. But I certainly know, you know, when, when they were, when, what was it? And, wherever that first giant protest was where they ran over, whatever, right? The signs didn't say anti-Black. The signs were anti-Jewish. Mm. I get that I'm a guest in this country. Jews get it inherently because we've never been allowed to stay anywhere for 2,000 years. And we're certainly, you know, a little over 1% of this country. We certainly were loud, but we're nobody, right? Um, so I think that you know, we are very aware that we've moved into a Christian, white Christian country. Um, and now white Christians are going to have to realize that we don't live in a white Christian country and we're not ready to give that up yet. They're not ready to give that up. And until they're ready to give that up and realize that, truthfully, here, I'll go back, Glenn. You know what you and I were talking about when we first met, what, 15 years ago and started hanging out? Yeah. We were talking about selling products to Hispanics. That people didn't know how to sell products to Hispanics. That's what you and I started talking about in this conversation years mm. ago. Yeah. Right? Was that, right? And that we should you should start a business doing that, teaching people how to sell. That's over. That feels like 50 years ago now, and <laughs> that you and I had that conversation, doesn't it? But but you know, that was it. How did we start to get um, how did we start to get businesses to pay attention? but we told them there was some profit in it. Now, if we're going to start saying, well, you know, USC is 15% first generation now to 20% in our admissions every year. And now they're going to start to say to them, hey, if you don't want to hire people of color, I don't know who you're hiring. Because <laughs> that's who we're graduating. 
<laughs> right? So suddenly, if you want to make money, then you better be hiring. I do not believe that white Christians are going to do this out of the goodness of their heart. No way. Just like now with this revolution, they're doing it with a gun to their head. And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But, but this is not, and they're not going down easy. Trump's ratings are not 12%. Trump's ratings are basically 50%. Right? And, you know, and what did we, and what did we, what did we decide to run against him? Another moderate white male, Christian male. So forgive me, Adelie, but I feel like you've politicized a simple question. Why? No shit. Sorry. What? You know, it's 2020, Glenn, and we're in the middle of a pandemic with a fascist government. I can't believe I politicized it. <laughs> but why did we ignore this cultural demographic shift? Glenn, it goes back to what, what Adlai said in the very beginning, right? When, when we were bringing in the, the economics and saying that the that, that economic human is not economic human, or at least it's a different economics than we were uh, pretending to be. And, and the fear of making a bad de- decision, right, is far more innately just part of us than doing the right thing or not doing the wrong thing just by saying, nope, I refuse to engage. I see the same thing happen when I have students that are freaking out about majors or careers. They just don't make a choice because they don't want to make the wrong one. Right. Get them to the end of their sophomore year, and you just have to start breaking it down. And then finally, they find themselves in such a huge crisis that boom, their head and their minds can open up beyond what they think that their parents think they should be beyond what they think society thinks they should be so they can earn a decent pay, so they can maybe have a family and maybe have a house, right? And instead, they just start with the question, so what do you really like doing? Talk to me about one class that you had a good time in, in your, in your gen ed core curriculum. Tell me about one cool class that you had. And it usually is something that isn't a professional school kind of skills-oriented course. I mean, every course is skills-oriented now, but um, or at least most should be. Um, but that said, what's cool is that whenever I've had that conversation with the student that is just struggling to find any major, when we start talking about that one class that actually was kind of fun, if they can admit it, you just see it like the, the weight starts to come off. And then the first question is, well, how would I explain this to my parents? And, yeah. and they start thinking through, OK, they, you can see that they're grabbing onto it because they're finally seeing a way out of this. But they're still afraid because, again, I want to make this. I, now they know it's the right decision, but they don't want to make it because not making that decision keeps a lot of other ones possible. It's the paralysis of opportunity. So let me ask this question then to both of you. Do you think that the way that higher education is reacting to social injustice is one of playing not to lose or playing to win? I think um, my side, I think we were playing to win. Up until this year. Hmm. And I think we're at a point this year where we're playing not to lose. Hopefully, this will create a more radical shift yep. that'll allow us to continue playing to win with a better understanding of what winning is. That's such a, you know what? I love that. Sorry, Scott, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's good. I just say an interesting, right back to that language. Winning is not what winning used to be. Economics is not what economics used to be. Profit is not what profit used to be. Um, these are words that, not, that don't need to be just played around and slightly altered. They need to be 
just fundamentally restructured and perhaps even reinvented. So, so now that we've got a formal, former Wall Street uh, executive with us, Scott, let's ask him. Define profit for us, Adley. Yeah, I mean, I'm a former Wall Street executive and I teach all this social investing. You know, I teach social impact in business. Um, I think, I think um, I'm, a, I'm a cynic, unfortunately. I'm a major cynic. I think, I think profit is still profit. I think profit, while doing as little damage as possible, okay. is starting to be a factor. Hmm. That we can't no longer play that, you know, what is it? The old, you know, burn and pillage. That's a, that, that's less possible these days. But profit's still profit. I start the day reading the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal and the New York Times paint two big different pictures of America. You know, let, I don't watch Fox News, which would paint an entire other, um, or CNN, which paints its own. Um, but the New York Times and the, and the Wall Street Journal, you would think that you live in two different countries. But essentially, the New York Times talks about a country that's in turmoil, and the Wall Street Journal talks about that uh, August is going to turn into turned into the uh, best month in the stock market in years. Because profit is profit, Clint. But so profit's profit. But we've already said that it has changed in some ways, right? And 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 you said so. So I'm trying to think of maybe a metaphor, or not a metaphor, but a parallel with say um, ecology and environmentalist. That when we saw that we were able to use um, essentially profit P and L to convince corporations and corporate leadership, it's actually in your best long term interest to go ahead and be part of this, right? And then we did see people starting to do some different kind of ecologically sensible things, not that it fixed everything, but we did see a movement. And what we often talk about when we get frustrated that that's mainly just a bunch of substitutional thinking or just a bunch of performative thinking, the way that we sometimes see diversity used, uh, we write, we call that greenwashing. So it's, you're not really changing anything, you're just wa you're washing it green so that it just looks better. And so what I'm hearing from you is that profit may um, be changing in terms of the way that we might be packaging it and showing it, but what, you, what I think I'm hearing from you is that at its core, right, at its essence, it is not changing one bit. I think what's changing is at what cost? At what cost? Can hmm. you explain that a little bit more? I think I get you, but I want to I hear Adelaide's words on this. Well, I just think that, you know, we can no longer ruin the environment. Profit's still profit, but can we still profit at the cost of the environment? That's becoming less capable. Can we still profit at, no, I would argue, can we still profit at, um, at the expense of people? Mm. Okay, so who's the, who's the richest person in the world right now? By, by numbers that are ridiculous, is Jeff Bezos. Bezos. Jeff Bezos has made every single penny on the back of people. And we're still buying Amazon every day. If four packages don't show up on my de my board front desk every day, I've done a bad job. Right? <laughs> like I open the door, I don't check my mail, but I check my Amazon packages. Yet it's all on the backs of people. Yeah. We're letting them get away with it. 
right? We're not, we're not taking them down, right? We're not actually, I've asked my students, they don't boycott. That's over. I, I, I don't get it, but we, you know, we're protesting and protest is great and I love it, but it's about economics, hmm. right? Until these white Christian males feel it in their pocketbook. Hmm. Um, and the question is for me that I keep asking is, what happens then? Right? There are two things that they can do then. One thing is the right thing. We'll wrap this up, Glenn, by going back to the very beginning. Right? What do, if this affects profit, there's two choices that they can do. One, they can um, do the right thing. Right? Diversify their fats, their, their, uh, what's it called? Pay people a living wage. Diversify, start to train, invest in the future of, of what's the future of America. Right. right. Or they can do the wrong thing and vote for Trump and write a lot of checks to Trump and say, we're going to vote for the guy who's going to keep the minorities down. Hmm. We're going to vote for the guy who understands that they're the enemy, not the future. Right. And that's their choices, which is not, in my opinion, not doing the right thing. Right. Even if it's not about Trump, even if it's yeah. just about, you know, we're just going to hold on to our seats as long as we can. Then we're that's the other option. Right. Do the right thing. Don't do the wrong thing. Well, can I, can, so I was just, just, like, could I keep them on the, the future thing real quick and then no. I'll bow out. Right. Um, because one thing that we've not really talked about directly is. You know, we talked about sort of transforming and transitioning in, in new sort of new moments. The, the person on the Zoom call with us is a master of transition and transformation, right? And so from, yes, Wall, are, Street, <laughs> <laughs> from Wall Street to chrysalis, from chrysalis that's, to academia. That's right. And as somebody that's done this transformation and felt the pulls and the pushes and all that, I'm curious, I'd like... Um, what are you feeling right now in terms of the pulls and the pushes with regard to your, your this probably not even your third chapter, but the third chapter I know about uh, with academia? Um, are you long for the academic world or are you starting to feel a new chrysalis emerge? Wow, great question. Play the fifth. Nice. I know what that means. <laughs> it, doesn't, it means, look, my whole career has been about since I left Wall Street and even to some extent on Wall Street has been about leverage. Okay. Where do I, what, what job do I fit in? What career do I fit in? Where my particular skill set, my particular things that are, are unique to me can have the greatest impact. Right? I was born with a set of skills that made success on Wall Street perfectly easy. I passed for white, have a high IQ, you know, I can bullshit, all of it. Um, and then I said, well, how can I leverage? So I ran a homeless agency saying, well, I can leverage those same skills in a different way. And then I said, well, now I have this very unique background, right? Undergrad in econometrics, graduate MBA from Wharton, 18 years on Wall Street, you know, more capitalist than most capitalists will ever be. Um, <laughs> I did... Working on Skid Row, I learned about social enterprise. And then I was one of the few people that I could even think of who could then walk in with that background, walk into a university and say, I have no PhD, 
I've never worked at a university before. I haven't taught before. Let me go start an entire program. Awesome. Right? But who else was going to pull that off? Right? It was like, I have this thing. So now my question is, is I continue to question all the time. If I want to make a positive difference in the world, where is my most leverage? Okay. I, I believe, and then I'm, I'm talking too much. I believe there are two jobs for managers. Well, I don't know how long we have. That there are two jobs for managers, right? One job is somebody calls me one day and says, hey, Adley, we've got 10,000 cats running around this neighborhood. I need you to get rid of those cats. Like, get them off the streets. And I go, I love it. Like, that is a job for me. I am going to <laughs> form a brilliant team of people who have all the skills necessary. I'm going to gather them up. I'm going to get them all psyched up. We're going to do planning 24 hours a day. We're going to get this happening. And one weekend, we're all going to get together. We're going to wear matching T-shirts. And we are going to get 10,000 cats in that parking lot. And, once they, and then I come in on Monday and they go, great job, Adelaide. Now your job for the rest of your life is to keep those cats in the parking lot. And I go, no, that's not my job. That's some process guy. Let the process person, let, the, let, the, let that person do that. That's not me. So the question is always for me has been the, when do I get to the point where I have to turn into a traditional manager rather than a builder, an entrepreneur? And then you have to sort of say, just like, and then I have to say to myself, is it time to build something new? Because you, you work at a university. Universities, I, I would say I had my five-year review of my center, right? Three professors came in and spent days with us reviewing everything about what we do. Giving, I mean, this was a big deal, right? The five-year review of the center, all of it. And the answer that they came out was, they're doing way too much. Adelaide's going to burn out. They're doing too much. I was like, that's a thing. That's not a thing. <laughs> like, only a university <laughs> would say that thing. Can you imagine a business saying, sorry, Adler, you're making too much money. You're, you're growing your department too fast. Just, <laughs> just, 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 slow down a little bit. So I think, you know, I, I have, I, I met with somebody the other day who said, what are your plans? You know, he asked me to write down my plans going forward. And by the end of my second page, he was like, I didn't even read your third. Like, you can't, you just can't do all this. So, so what are you going to give up? Like, why are you doing all this? So I don't know. It might be at a university. It might be, might not be. But cool. I'm 61. I think I got another chapter. It might I be at the university. Your example it totally explains why, while the professionalization of schools is important to learn certain skills, what you, what, it's what you came into that professional school with that turned out to be what got you where you are and to allow you to do what you did. And I just love that, that, that again, we're under, under understanding the importance of the individual, right? Their upkeep before the day they even get to college. That's that there's things that are already pre-cooked and we can embrace that and we can find ways to help people find themselves so they can apply and leverage their selves and their talents uniquely, not into a box called uh, accounting or anthropology, but human. Anyway, what do you think? I, I will say though, that the difference is, is that, for first-generation uh, Americans going into college right now, going to accounting school is what's going to lift them and their family out of poverty okay. so that their kids can study whatever they want. Good point. I, I think that the, you know, the one place where I, I, I really change my tone 
is when it comes to first generation students, socioeconomically, students who don't typically haven't typically gone to college. There, I'm buying into the ROI model 100. percent Same okay. as as Glenn's father, uh, God bless him, may he rest in peace. And my parents made that that you know did that work for us, so that I had the luxury of choice. And I think that right now that ROI model works very well for them. I, I don't think it works. I don't think it's a good idea for a university as a whole. But I think we do have to understand that, yes, the luxury of doing what I love, but that, that isn't a luxury. It's a luxury. That is what I love. It is. You know, I, I think I'd like to wrap up uh, kind of putting all of this together and saying that uh, you are a, an example of an individual who um, leveraged their individual capacity. Uh, there were moments in your life where you decided to pivot. Uh, you knew if you were doing right or wrong, you knew that there was something more and better for you that would benefit uh, the healthier whole. And uh, that's why you've been an inspiration for me, Adley. I mean, I can say publicly with a tremendous uh, uh, amount of uh, gratitude that it's because of you that uh, I'm at where I'm at today. Um, so, cause you kept pushing and pushing and pushing because you did the same thing to yourself. And you said earlier on in the conversation that your kids are really progressive and that they're thinkers and, you know, you're learning from them just as much as they're learning from you. It's like the role is reversed. Uh, all I, I want to say as we, as we wrap up is I believe that the, there's another chapter in your life and uh, the moment uh, calls uh, for, for you and what you have to offer more than ever before. So, uh, I'm with you there, brother, and I love you a lot, and I appreciate you taking the time, and I know you don't like it when I talk like this about you, but um, you're an inspiration, man. <laughs> and, well, you know, I'm just waiting around. You've never offered me a job, Glenn. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that as I look at my, uh, my, my books, unfortunately, I'm not at the university where my office there where most of my books are. Still, my most treasured are uh, the ones you've signed for me. So oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks, Adelaide. Scott, it was great to talk to you, Glenn. Great to know you. You're, you're unbelievable. And by the way, just want to remind our, our listeners that Adlai will be one of the featured speakers at the 2020 Leadership in the Age of Personalization uh, Virtual Summit that'll take place October 28th uh, through the 30th. And as we always say when we end the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you so much, Adelaide. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution not evolution.